You are now listening to the Life on Repeat podcast with Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and elder care coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Well, hey, everyone. I am super glad that you are joining us today. And I have an amazing guest that I'm really excited to dive into and talk about all kinds of things, including grief and living with grief while both while you're caring for somebody who has memory impairment or dementia and after. And she's an author. She is a grief expert. So I'd like to welcome Jill Johnson Young. She lectures internationally on grief and dementia. She's a co-founder of Central Counseling Services in Riverside and Murrieta. Murrieta, thank Wine you. Wine country. <laughs> Wine country. Oh, that's even, yes. that's even better. So that's in California. She's an author, educator, clinician. Her background includes hospice, where she was a social worker and then a director of social workers, chaplains, and grief staff, as well as the Bereavement Center and the Children's Grief Program, and you oversaw interns there. And this book, your newest book, is called The Rebellious Widow, and it was released in March as in this year or last year? Just a few days ago. Oh, wonderful. Okay, this is perfect. I love it. You also have three children's books on grief and an adult grief workbook. Fabulous. I don't sleep very much. (laughs) (laughs) I find that caregivers don't. (laughs) That's true. Very true. And the work that you are doing in the world, I mean, just simply by reading about little about your experience and stuff speaks so much about you and, and there's such a need. I know that you are in good company here, and the folks that are listening are the folks that really need to hear the message that you have. So I would love to hear first, how have you personally and or professionally been impacted by dementia, you know, any of the dementias? You know, and I appreciate you said any of the dementias, because <laughs> you know what, when you've had someone with something not the big A, yes, and, and all you see is the big A things, it's like, there's a bunch of us. There's a bunch of us, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up with a grandma who had Alzheimer's to the best of our knowledge. That was a long time ago and we didn't have the greatest diagnostics, but looking back, it was probably along those lines and we cared for her. My mom was her primary caregiver for many years. She died when I was 13 and I'm currently living next door to my mom. I sold the home where I raised my kids and where my wives died so that we could be next door to mom up the street because her house is made for someone who is handicapped because of my dad having been handicapped and we wanted to keep her home. So she has, she's beyond mild cognitive impairment. Now we're, we're moving into other directions. It's not as bad as it's going to be, but I know what's coming. So you, you're currently living it. You are currently a family caregiver. Uh, Well, my daughter is the primary, but I am the backup. I'm very fortunate. Mom, she lives with mom. We're next door. We make a kind of our own little COVID bubble without meaning to. We got in here just before we slid in six months before COVID. So that was good. And then I lost my second wife to Louis body dementia. Her name was Casper. She was a hospice nurse. And it took until six months before she died 
before we actually got the diagnosis and I had to ask the doctor for the diagnosis. So it was, it was chaos for three and a half years. Okay. It was, so I have, I, and I, I run a dementia support group because with hospice, I would walk into dementia families' homes and they would say, I don't understand. She's on hospice now and she has dementia. And the ads say dementia doesn't, you know, you're still the same person and, and it's not a terminal illness. I'm like, yeah, it's a bunch of BS. Wow. Wow. Dementia isn't so that message, a terminal illness. Right. So that message, you're still seeing that uh, mis-message mis being spread. I see it so often. And I, you know, bless their hearts. I understand the associations are trying to give hope and there's reason to give hope. And we've got research, but to be fair, we're a ways out and a long ways out on some of them like Louie body. And, you know, you see the one little white balloon and that's going to be the first survivor. And I just want to say, stop it. Can we, can we focus on the caregivers because they're the ones in the battle right now? Mm -hmm. So I started a dementia support group. I approached one of our local ALFs that had a memory care unit and said, can I borrow a room like once a month? And could you make us cookies and coffee? Cause I need a space to do this and I can't do it at my office. Cause there's too much going on at that point. I was working full-time for hospice and part-time private practice. And it was before my wife was diagnosed. I did that because oh, wow. I saw an unmet need and the only groups in town were all titled with the big a and they were during the day. So people who were working for a living couldn't get there. So I made it Saturdays and I just donated a Saturday morning once a month. What and do you think? I mean, this is, this is so powerful. And this is often what we hear, I think, in, in the dementia world, you know, is that there hasn't been historically, there hasn't been a lot of attention given to aging individuals in general, let alone, you know, the terminal illness of the different types of dementias that are out there. And so I see and I've met, and I'm sure you have too, so many people that have just grassroots started these, we need a support group, or we need support for education, or we need people just create this stuff on their own when it's not available to them. That's how we end up with Purple Cities in my town of Riverside, California, because first of all, we had a mayor whose mom died of dementia, but I had been the social worker for a guy whose wife died of early onset Alzheimer's. My wife died of early onset Louis body. She was 57 when she died. And when you're early onset, you've got like zero to five years yeah. start to finish in general. That can be longer. Everybody's different, it progresses but everybody's quickly. brain is deteriorating rapidly. And he kept finding that there was like, there was no place that could meet the needs of those families. And so he approached the mayor who we knew from someplace else and said, in England, they've got purple villages. Could we have a purple city? And there is a purple city campaign on the East coast of the United States. It's voluntary cities can join if they want to. So we took it home to Riverside and we decided as a grassroots group with just people who showed up that we wanted to address like businesses. And so we did this whole thing where we created a curriculum to teach restaurants how to be dementia friendly, right? Change the lighting, give them a smaller menu, use smaller plates, don't treat them like they're six, but look for the cues from the caregiver and don't assume who's got dementia. You can have an older person with a younger person with dementia. 
So did you actually create a, is, is there like a, a training curriculum for? We had, we created one. Amazing. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And then we changed mayors and uh, now we don't have purple cities anymore, but the curriculum got out there and we know we've got about 15 restaurants where it's been trained mm-hmm. and they have little cards for their staffers so that they have some cues. Amazing. And we gave them purple cities things to put on their front register. Of course, mm-hmm. this is before COVID where they could, it could be clear to someone coming in who knows about it, that they're in a dementia friendly restaurant. Yeah. So that, that it's basically, you're stating that it's a safe place. There's right. been some basis of education and you're there to be supported. And wow. Right. We're not going to expect you to look at the entire norms menu. That's 27 pages long and have a decision made in five minutes. Cause we know you can't do that, yeah. but we're not going to say it that way. Right. 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 Most of dementia is grassroots. My mom actually helped found the first adult daycare in our community years and years and years ago because there was no place to take my grandmother. Yeah. And a church donated a back building and now it's a huge corporation and she's long since left it and they have buses and I couldn't use those for my late wife because there isn't an adult daycare in our entire county where you can lay down. Mm. Mm-hmm. And with Louis body, there is pain and there are tremors and there is fatigue. Whereas with other ones, there's go, go, go. Mm-hmm. And we need to exercise with Louis body. We need to be able to rest. Mm-hmm. So nobody with Louis body could send anyone there. Besides that, when they're hallucinating, they can be a little trouble, right? I so appreciate, you know, just our conversation so far, even mm-hmm. in, because you're right. What happens so often is dementia or really what we see is everybody with dementia gets labeled as having Alzheimer's disease. And it's so important that people understand the different types that are out there and that people can have more than one type going That's on. That's more common than not. Yeah. Yeah. It's the most common that I'm seeing right now are vascular plus Alzheimer's and Lewy body plus Alzheimer's. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And vascular and Alzheimer's, you can pretty much spot. And if someone's had some strokes or TIAs, you can guess that that's what's going on, mm-hmm. but Louis body is a whole different animal. Yeah. And it causes chaos. Yeah. But you know, the frontotemporal folks are dealing with lots of times with criminal charges, yep. things like that. And impulse control. People don't recognize it. Yeah. And their families Very don't know hard. what they're seeing. <laughs> one of the things, yeah. One of the things that I hear a lot from families is Oh, you know, now when I look back over the last year or two, it all makes sense. But those first couple of years are so hard and painful in so many ways when the person that has the disease and their family members and friends and coworkers and, you know, on and on don't understand something's going on. And And we know from the research that someone who's experiencing the first dementia symptoms waits an average of two years. Before they acknowledge it, they cover it, they cover their tracks because they don't want to have dementia, right? Right. I am not going to volunteer. I'm relatively certain it will be me. My family history does not speak to me not having dementia, right? I'm aware of that, but we cover it up and we try to not acknowledge it. And for the people who are early onset, that's really dangerous because they tend to lose jobs and then they lose their retirement. Whereas if they could medically retire, the family's taken care of. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to this. If we could, you know, have some decent television and lots of shows like yours getting lots of play mm-hmm. so that we could see it as something other than the notebook. 
which right. is a beautiful movie and completely freaking unrealistic. Right. It just, it yeah. doesn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the other things that I think of too, is I love what you're saying, you know, about just, I don't want to say normalizing it. Nobody wants to normalize this, but oh, we the, need to. But we need, the reality is it's happening, right? And the more that people can be educated about it and understand the symptoms and understand how to support what supports are needed for the person and the caregivers, life would sure look different. You said, you said something, Jill, uh, that I, I would love to just touch on a little deeper. You, you mentioned that your family history, you know, given your family history, this is something that you are aware of that you may be facing in the future. We don't, you know, nobody knows. I would, I mean, this is something that so many family caregivers have in the back of their mind. Yes, that, that the family legacy or your genes or how, and, and I love having this conversation with you because you're a grief expert. And so what are your thoughts about how, as a, as a family member, caring for somebody who has memory impairment and knowing that you may have a, a, a disposition towards- I definitely do. That, I don't yeah. need a genetic screen and there isn't one, but I know it's there. Yeah. So it's tell me- on both sides of my family. <laughs> how, do you, how do you cope with that? What do you do? And, and what would you recommend others do if they live with that fear every day? I have turned it not into a fear. It's a reality, right? Dementia is more than likely coming. And in my family also, every woman gets breast cancer by the age of 73, without exception. Not a terrible form, but everybody has a mastectomy before they're 75. Mm -hmm. I am fully aware that that's also probably coming. Mm -hmm. I could live in terror of it, or I could just make sure I am keeping an eye on things, taking Mm -hmm. care of things, have all the documents in order. And I do. My family is one where grief has always been part of everyday life. Mm-hmm. I grew up, there are pictures of me running funerals for small rodents that we found in our yard and all the neighbor kids are there and I'm wearing like a choir chancel over myself and we're, you know, everyone's got flowers. That's just how we did things, right? My, my parents <laughs> were older and my dad would have been 94 this year. So there's, a, there's a, an age spread. So I did not have the youngest parents. I had the oldest family members. So there was lots of, and there there were big families. My grandfather came from 14. So there were lots of people who died over the years and it just became part of life. And my kids, of course, have watched my wife, Linda, mom, Linda die. And then they watched Casper die. And now I'm married to a funeral director. So, you know, we, we do death and dying all day and all night. I write books about it. The kids know how to talk about it. When my grandchildren lost a rabbit, they want, you know, my daughter called and said, I don't know what to do, mom. I said, I can't believe you're saying that to me. I feel like such a failure, right? She's in training to become an MFT. Come on now, right? And so we brought the rabbit over. We had the little shoebox. We dug the hole. We did the little funeral. And then the next day, my grandson, Mikey, called and said, grandma, so can we put a phone out there so I can talk to rabbit? And I said, oh, I'd really love to. But you know what you could do? You could just talk to him. And let him hear you talking to him. And we'll do that. But then you can bring him flowers. Absolutely. Normal. It yeah. Death happens and we make it normal. You know, you're bringing such a good point, And that is what are our, our, our individual personal experiences with death and loss. And, you know, uh, some people like yourself 
were really exposed at a young age to a lot of loss. And I was there for learning processes. That was normal. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've sanitized it. People go to the hospital. COVID is the exception. COVID is not sanitizing. It's people go to the hospital because they can't breathe. Then they don't come home. But we don't have the the research is most people want to die at home, but most people don't because someone panics and calls 911. And then they spend 70% of the money they're ever going to spend on medical care on the last two weeks of life when they could have been home in a hospital bed with, you know, comfort and family and good food and, you know, lots of friendliness and smiles. What do you think is the root of that? What do you think is the root of that panic at the last minute? There are fears of being accused of not doing enough, which is not infrequent in the dementia community. If someone is no longer eating or drinking, then unless the entire family structure from far away and close in realizes that end of life includes not eating or drinking, then there may be accusations or hints that you are starving them to death or dehydrating them to death when in fact with end-stage dementia, you don't swallow anyway. Mm-hmm. And at end of life, your body's not processing fluids. So if you put a tube in, all you're going to do is cause aspiration pneumonia and swelling. Yeah. Right. We, we don't have enough conversation about what death looks like. Mm-hmm. That's when I do education for therapists on grief, I make them sit through a full hour of the dying process. Mm-hmm. That is mandatory because you can't do grief with someone unless you can explain what happened and right. what that person was seeing and misinterpreting. So people panic. They call 911. I ended up posting the post forms in hot pink over the bed of each of my wives. So in case I was not home, because I still had to work, if the paramedics arrived, they would stop. They would see that. They mm-hmm. would see it. Did you say Did you say hot pink? Hot pink. They, the, the post form is actually printed on hot pink in California. And it's oh, shown everywhere. In it's, Washington, it's it's green. It's a lime green. That's <laughs> visible. That's visible. Yep. So that's something people are going to stop and see. Can you tell can you tell our listeners what a post form is? Uh, yes, it's a physician's order regarding life-sustaining treatment. And it gives you the power of having a, a signature from the doctor co-signing with the patient or the caregiver saying these are the way things are going to be handled. And it's not just I'm a no code, it's I want to be basically a slow code. I want you to do CPR and then stop. I don't want to be intubated. I don't want you touching me. If you do chest compressions, I will come back and haunt you. I do want all the artificial food, fluid, everything. I only want fluid if it's going to be involved in comfort measures or if it's going to involve antibiotics. Or I don't want antibiotics at all. Leave me alone. Stop the meds. It's got lots of different places that you can make gradations of what you want done. It's very specific. It's comforting for family if they're aware of its existence because they know that their loved one made these decisions. I will tell you the last 37 days Casper was alive. She didn't eat and she got very little fluid. You know, we put some fluid in her mouth and she would sometimes not choke, but with Louis body, you're, you're still aware. You are psychotic. You are not able to remember. You're not able to function. And then you're back. Right. And it happens over and over and over again but she didn't eat or drink and she couldn't, she would choke. We'd had that conversation about 10 months before that we were at lunch waiting to go to the neurologist in Palm Springs and she ate a sandwich and she choked. 
And she saw the look on my face. I'd done hospice for more than a decade at this point. And she said, stop. You're not calling 911. And we're going to sign the form. You are not going to intubate me. You're not putting a G-tube in. You're not doing an NG tube. We're not doing it. If you do, I will never forgive you. Yeah, she was very clear and able to state those wishes. She, was she knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was over her bed, and I would look at it, and when I would get calls from people saying, "But what?" Because I wrote blogs while they were sick, so that I could inform people what was going on and not have to answer the phone and not have to send emails. I I just disconnected from all of that toward the end of each of their lives. So here's what's going on. Here's what's going on at the beginning of the illness. Here's how everything happened. They're informative. They're educational. And I put in there, this on, and she's not eating. And then I used Facebook and social media to say, okay, so this morning at two, we woke up because there were bad guys coming through the wall. And, you know, I had to get under the bed so that she could protect me. And that's the reality of our life. If you don't want to know about it, you know, block me. Mm-hmm. But that's the reality and you need to know it. I, I like that suggestion. It's just a, a helpful tip, I think, for some mm-hmm. caregivers to, instead of feeling the need to, because I, I hear this a lot too, there's so much pressure on family caregivers to keep people updated and answer their questions when they call and and nope. jump to everybody's needs. Nope. And yeah, so I love what you did. And that was, you just wrote one update and sent it to whoever needed to know about it. And the Um, blog had humor in it. Sometimes it was just educational. There was one, I I was just so tired of people not understanding Louis body dementia that I wrote an entire blog about, this is what Louis is. This is what it does. These are, it affects you system-wide. There are GI symptoms with Louis body dementia and Parkinsonism dementia. And so I wrote it all out and then I just put it up and I don't do anything with the blog but it's been used to diagnose at least nine people whose doctors were ignoring their symptoms now. Wow. Because people don't know this stuff. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't have time to talk to you. I don't owe you a phone call. Mm-hmm. I owe my wife time. I owe my kids time. Mm-hmm. I owe my dogs time. I don't owe you time. If you mm-hmm. want to stop by and drop off a casserole and come say hello, you're more than welcome to. I can't guarantee it's going to be pretty. She may be well opened and receptive to you, or she may think you are an ex murderer, or she may tell you that I'm the bad Jill and you need to get rid of me because the good Jill is gone and the good Jill needs to come back. Because we had a lot of those moments too. Moments. Or that I'm poisoning her. Please know I'm not poisoning her. That's the dementia speaking. Right. Oh, man. You're, you're, yeah, you're bringing up all these good points because I do, you know, family members also are faced, and you kind of touched on this in the very beginning with their, extended family or people that aren't really involved, not understanding. And being critical. Yeah. And then having an expectation or an, um, sometimes, sometimes they are really intending to be helpful by overburdening with information and resources and ideas and tips. And other times the other extreme, like you said, is um, being critical. And so, yeah. Sometimes it's how dare you hire a caregiver. You're in mom's house and you're living there for free. You shouldn't have to hire a caregiver. You should be able to do this. And they're in Connecticut, right? Right. And we're in California. How would you know what? No, mm-hmm. spend the money and then they get sued. So I think we, we need to really be acutely aware for those who are not the caregiver, mm-hmm. that the caregiver is telling you the truth when they're telling you it's really hard. Yeah. And yeah. in COVID, it's been so much harder. 
Yes. So much harder. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, yeah, we, this is a whole new <laughs> experience, right. a lay, a giant layer on top of um, everything else. Yes. Layer. Yeah. So I was thinking about some questions to ask you. And one of the things that I would love to know a little bit more about. Well, first of all, I'd love to learn more about your book. I, The, the Rebellious Widow, what a title. <laughs> it's totally I, me. <laughs> I am so attracted to the title because, um, I, I, and you spoke to this so well earlier that people are afraid or they don't know how to talk about death and dying or grief. And um, and so I love that your, your title just sort of conveys you're just putting it all out there and, um, you know, it, it like it is tell it like it is. Yeah. Well, I put the books from the blogs and I, what I did was I printed all of them and to my horror, they were 350 pages and I had friends who were professional writers. And I said, I want this to do something. And they said, no, one's going to read that. It's all <laughs> autobiographical. Some of it's sad, you know, and some of it is, and it needs, if you want to do something, what do you want to do with it? And so I finally found an editor that I could work with well. And she said, you're telling me that you want to make a difference in the lives of other people and you want to help them become rebellious widows, but you want to get them through the beginning, middle and to the end. I said, yes. So we organized it that way. And she was ruthless. She took the blogs and she would say, okay, you've told me these are the areas you've written all the information. I did all the writing. These are the stories that I think would fit best from your blogs. You pick. And I'd say, yeah, no, you pick because I like all of them. And <laughs> I have a very high opinion of my writing. And so, no, you pick. I'm not going to slash and burn myself. <laughs> and so we worked at it for about two years. I started this book when Casper was still alive. And we were in Maui together. And it just sort of sat and sat and sat. And finally, my, my current wife, Stacey, said, you've got to do it. It's got information. So the first part of the book is about how you get through an illness, right? How do you keep the notebook? What information do you need to keep handy? What documents do you need? So there's some practice. There's a lot of practical. It's boots on the ground. It really is. It's a boots on the ground, how to get through the death and illness of an intimate partner or anyone else for that matter. You know, the widow in it is because of who I am, but it really fits pretty much anyone who has an illness going on in their home, mm-hmm. perhaps not children so much. And I recognize that I did children, I did pediatric hospice, but still there's a lot of good in the information in there about how to organize and what things you need to think about. You know, how do you do the finances? If you forgot to pay the power bill, cause you're stressed out, put everything on auto pay right now, mm-hmm. right? If you haven't applied for benefits, get it done. Don't, don't screw around with it. And then it's got the dying process in there, just like it is. It's got all the bits, all the things you're probably going to see, um, what to expect, and what the dying person is experiencing or not experiencing from the research that we have. Because lots of people, when they see someone dying and they're doing Shane Stokes breathing, where their breath comes and goes, they'll say they were gasping for breath. And I'll say, no, no, their, their brain and their lungs just weren't communicating anymore. And that was just autonomic and they weren't stressed by it. And we know that from some EEG studies, but they could hear you. And we know that from some other EEG studies. So we we do those things. It it does those things because I want people to know that stuff. Right. And this is what people need is um, uh, so often 
people ask for this information, whether, uh, and, and most of the time, I would hope, and we tend to see hospice staff, you know, whether that's a nurse or the social worker, whoever is on the hospice team is going to be really upfront and educating families, but not always. And not every family has the benefit of having hospice on board either. So what I hear you saying is the huge bias against hospice. Hospice is going to come and kill my loved one. And we have doctors who don't refer to hospice. Right. Or they referred late. Like last two days, last 24 yeah. hours. It's just stupid. Yes, it helps a little, but not like it could. Mm-hmm. And we also know 50% of the doctors in this country don't ever say the word dementia. Yeah. They don't say it to the person and they don't say it to the family. Or death. Or death. So they don't even know that they should have hospice. Mm-hmm. So this does some of that hospice education from the heart of a hospice. And this is, I love the idea of it being in a book too, because then, you know, people can read it on their own time. They can go back, they can refer to it. It's They can hand it to someone. <laughs> you could write in it. <laughs> That's exactly what it's the there. <laughs> right. It also has a section on hospice. How do you get hospice in? Right. If your doctor's not doing it, how do you go behind their back and do it? And yes, I said that. <laughs> then I don't care doctors if I pissed you off because sometimes we have to go behind your back, right? And that you can fire your hospice if they're not doing their job. There's yeah. another one. And it's mm-hmm. a Medicare carve out. So you can choose your hospice. Yeah. It gives some power and control to the partner who's managing this. Because their life is not under their control when their loved one's dying. But they can have control over who's there. Yes. There are so many areas that you can have control. I love that you say that. Yes. It's and the it reframing. Talk- and it talks then about going into grief as you are in charge of it and setting boundaries. So it talks about setting boundaries before they die, because if you don't, then the people around you will feel like they can direct how you're going to do the grief afterward. And there is a a well-intentioned need, especially towards women, to protect them from the reality of the stuff that needs to get done. And I don't know why. This is 2021. Yeah. A woman who's vice president, women can cope with people dying. And women are the ones that are coping with people dying. I mean, that's the reality. Women are the caregivers. Women are the the ones that are having to take a stand and educate themselves and advocate for their loved ones. And hospices in the 1500s were run by women. They were way stations where you would stop and they morphed into someone's too sick to go on. We leave our loved one here. They're going to die. And we go on the rest of our trip, right? Because we were on horseback and walking. Those were the women. Women have always done this work, but we protect them from it. You shouldn't have to plan the funeral. You shouldn't make decisions about what to do with the house. You had to, no, you should plan all of it. Yeah. You should plan it ahead of time. It should be your voice. I'm an HGTV fan. You should put your own stamp on it. You should make it reflect you. Right. We do great funerals. We have shave ice. We have luau's in the backyard. We celebrate life. We cry too, but you know, we talk about them as they were. They my, people when they die in my family are not perfect. And we talk about how hard it was to deal with dementia or pulmonary fibrosis. And we're gonna do that again when my mom dies. It's it's the only right thing to do in terms of how I function. And I find that it's it's a healthy approach. Yeah. yeah. So I it's love, I mean it's on the ground process. <laughs> it's seriously, I mean, this is the gift 
that you're offering that I that I'm seeing is that you are a professional, you work in the healthcare industry, you have years of experience, and you have a very you have your own personal unique experience with dementia. I have walked that walk so many times I have lost track of the steps. <laughs> it's helpful because when I'm doing grief support with someone, when I'm the grief therapist or running the grief group, I am transparent. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to say I know how you feel because I don't. I didn't know how I was going to feel. And it felt different with both of them dying and with my dad dying and with all the other losses. Right. And in fact, the anniversary of my first wife's death is on Friday. It'll be 11 years Friday because wow. she died on Good Friday, three hours before Jesus. Yes. We laughed about that too. <laughs> and she did too. The day she died. But it also has the pieces on how to grieve your way. Because when you are in particular a widow, there are widow rules Mm -hmm. and they tell you how to grieve and they put rules on you. And typically they are the rules that make everyone else comfortable. They don't make a lot of sense and they don't make for healthy grieving, but they are right there. You don't laugh too much because then you're not sad enough, but don't be too sad because then you make other people sad and feel bad. You don't change the house because then you're changing things and you're not missing them enough. But you should change the house because it looks too much like they used to live here. Don't get rid of the clothes. Do get rid of the clothes. It depends on the individual person. I had a friend who was a hospice supervisor, nursing supervisor. She came home from her husband's funeral. His clothes were gone. Somebody had gotten into the house and gotten rid of them because they thought she wouldn't want them there and shouldn't have them there. She wanted them. She wanted to go home and hug his shirts smell them and be yeah and everybody's unique because I've seen the opposite too I mean as I'm sure you have families that have been shocked that mom went home and donated all of their dad's things to goodwill and, and it's mom's decision um, <laughs> it's, it's everybody is different and unique and sometimes you won't even know what you want until the moment right oh, mm-hmm. right and the th- there's this whole myth that you don't make any changes for a year That came from long ago. Somebody made it up out of a whole cloth and then we just built on it. And it got built into every grief curriculum of Mm -hmm. every hospice in the Mm eighties. And there's no research. Mm -hmm. Nothing supports it. Mm -hmm. People need, need to make decisions. Sometimes they have to move, you know, yeah, this is so in line with your book, The Rebellious Widow. Like these are the themes that I can see. Yes. Like the, the like, these are the rules, the kind of, you know, unspoken rules about grieving and what that looks like. You have such good examples. Yeah, not being too sad or not sad enough or and for God's sake, don't get seen dating cuz yeah, that Woof. Right. You are a deep caca when you date again and you yeah. shouldn't date in your own community cuz people will talk. And that doesn't reflect the reality of someone who's been through a long illness. Right. Because spouses who go through long illnesses and then go through the death of their spouse, they've already grieved. They've been grieving for a long time. With dementia in particular, we grieve from the moment the diagnosis happens with every change, every shift, that moment they forget what to do with the toilet paper or they don't want to get in the shower anymore or they think you're the bad Jill, not the good Jill, you know, all those things that just go rip, rip, rip on your heart. Those are grief moments. And so you've done that. By the time they die, you've done all but about three months worth of grief. So you're ready to reconnect with life, 
but the people who weren't laying in bed next to that and weren't in that house, they're like, I'm not done grieving. What are you doing? How dare you? Yeah. You know, I did my grief. I was a caregiver for close to seven years with Linda and three years with Casper. And I was all kinds of beat up and I loved them intensely. Just like every caregiver does. That's why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. But I was exhausted. Yeah. And truth be told, Linda got close to Casper before she died. And they connected as nurses. And they had dads who were the same, old Southern boys. These two had so much in common. Casper used to sneak over while I was at work and hang out with Linda in the afternoon. And they would drink the chocolate sodas that they both loved. I still don't understand that. I think they're probably having them right now together and laughing at me. So they hung out and they got close before Linda died. She started saying, Casper, you got to marry Jill. Jill, you got to marry Casper. She told the minister to marry us. She told the kids this was going to happen. She told our best friends. Mm-hmm. She was right. She gave permission too. To... She ordered, there, there was no permission. That, was <laughs> that wasn't a permission thing. It was a <laughs> do it. bucket list was three pages long. I wrote it all down. Get the kids through high school. There's so many beautiful stories about that. You know, you hear them. Um, you hear them in the cancer world of a spouse who is dying and who wants their current spouse to marry their best friend or to marry, you know, someone. And, and those are and everyone else goes, no, 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 you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Don't, it's not your place. Mm-hmm. It is not your place because mm-hmm. it has been a struggle and they know each other and they're connected. Lots of widows and widowers marry old friends from way back when mm-hmm. they don't go on the dating scene so much. They marry within their circle. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, in fact, now I'm married to the funeral director who took care of both of them. So mm-hmm. everybody knew everybody. It's all very connected. <laughs> Not incestuous, but kind of weird. But everybody knew each other. And it's comfortable for me, right? I don't have to explain who everybody was. Right. So for me, it's rebellious widowhood means you get to do it your way. And you don't have to listen to the people who don't want you to do it their way. You know, you've if you're going to do it some other way, they can go to the outer circle. And if they ever want to come back in, then they can request permission, but they don't have to be part of the grief process. Yeah. They can go do their thing because especially if they're a couple, they still got each other. And for widows and widowers, they tend to get ejected from couple groups. Mm -hmm. It's very common. Wow. This is such a refreshing tool, you know, for, for folks to be exposed to really, I know that's that's kind of the theme of what we're talking about here with your book, but, you know, not to overemphasize, but the reality is you're right, that society, our culture, our families, all of, you know, the history that we've been grown up with, the expectations that are laid upon us, there's a huge weight to do things a certain way or the right way or to honor. Interest and you will find you're going to grieve forever. You don't have to. Mm-hmm. You can do a grief process and finish up that relationship and finish up the leftovers. You are going to miss them sometimes. Absolutely. And, you know, Linda dying on around Easter time was kind of a dirty trick because it, when you have a, a loss associated with the holiday, you get two anniversaries a year. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. It's been, it's been years. I'm good with it. I am taking Friday off because mm-hmm. I have a need this year to just go do what I need to do. Some years I'm, I don't, but the missing is not grieving. It's missing in the vocabulary I use. 
Queen Victoria set up this whole weird expectation of we should dress in black for the rest of our lives. And we sh- she got married secretly in her castle out in the countryside. And we didn't have social media and nobody knew, but her staff knew. And they hid it from her kids. And then when she died, her kids destroyed all the evidence. Wow. I didn't know this story about Queen Victoria. It's crazy. They, there was one bus left and she put it in the garden and because she liked to walk in the garden. The reason we know about this stuff is because she also learned Arabic because she was an avid reader and she, she was a scholar. And so she wrote her journals in Arabic. Wow. And the kids and did. That's how, that's how her story. Oh, my gosh. Nobody knew. They got stored in storage. And, oh, it's Queen Victoria's diary. Oh, yeah. It was a racy diary. Thank you very much. At least for <laughs> those times. She dressed in black because that's what people needed. Because yeah. that's what the widow rules said. Because that's what her kids needed her to do. Yeah. And when she got them all farmed out, she she just did Vicky. Right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> it was a rebellious widow. Ah, uh, I love that. That's a great story. Right? Well, Jill, this has been such a, a great talk with you. And I know that so many people are going to benefit just from hearing our conversation, you know, about your experience and your work and in your book and how to think about grief differently. You know, we talked about all kinds of things. And is there any way, I'm sure that people, you know, folks are going to want to reach out to learn more about the work that you do. What is the best way that, that people can find you? JillJohnsonYoung.com. Jill it's Johnson kind of weird being Young. a social worker and having a .com, but I have a .com. It's my name, all, you know, no hyphen, no caps, just my name, .com. And on there, I built that site specifically so that it has resource pages and it's got resources for every kind of loss and resources for every kind of dementia. Wow. So I find new research, I throw it in there. Um, or I don't, my Curie does, that is 21 and I can send her stuff and it just goes, right? <laughs> Because everyone needs a, a, a Kiri, um, especially when they're my age. And yeah. so it's, right? Me too. <laughs> it's got all that. It's got the books on it. It's got information about classes I'm teaching. It's got information about grief groups I run. But it's there to be educational. It's got some videos and podcast links on there. Because I think that all of us together, the more we strengthen each other and support each other, the better off all of us are. And we don't have enough education in this country about dementia. People don't know there are 12 of them. They don't know what they look like. They don't know how to describe them. I teach them this this stuff occasionally at conferences. But when I apply to conferences for therapists, they're like, oh, I, I don't. Why do we need to know about dementia? I'm like, Because it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. One in eight, folks. One in eight. It's going to happen. We need yeah, to talk about it. We need yeah. to talk about it more and more oh. people. Yeah. Right. I had one conference where they gave they put me on a panel. I had 15 minutes. And I squashed all of dementia into 15 minutes. I thought I was talking like an auctioneer. (laughs) So I was a little theatrical, but got the point across. I had a line a mile long and a mile deep of people saying, oh my God, I've got this client. Oh, my dad, my mom, my grandma. They want to know the information. There's just not a lot of places to get it. So yeah, I, I welcome you to come join me on my site. You can find me on all the social media. You can find me on 
every kind social of social media. Is it Jill Johnson Young? Social media? Jill Johnson Young, and you okay. will find me. I'm everywhere. And the books are all on Amazon. You can also order The Rebellious Widow from um, independent booksellers. And I would really ask that people do that because those folks have been hit hard by the pandemic and we need to keep them open. We want to support our local. Yeah, absolutely. The mom and pops need to stay open. Yeah. Well, Jill, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I really, it's been great to get to know you a little bit better too. Yeah, maybe we'll have you on in the future. <laughs> I hope so. And I hope everyone avails themselves of all the resources you've put together, Laura, because those are hugely important. It's Thank great you. Doing this. We have a, we we have a similar philosophy on just getting information out. That's the goal, <laughs> right? And supporting everybody and caregivers. More power to you. You're doing a job. Very few people understand how hard it is, and you got to know there are people like us behind you, cheering you on and offering you support whenever you need it. Wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.